You're listening to Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast, discovering our inner depths, one fathom at a time. Welcome back once again to Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast. We uh, are jumping into part two of our episode with Tom Condon. Yeah, if you didn't have a chance to listen to part one, which we released last week, please do so because uh, so good. And this picks up where we left off. We just had too much goodness uh, to throw in one week. So felt like we needed to split it up. Enjoy. So you just said, you know, these are kind of examples of ego trips. This is sort of when we are in the trance of our type, right? And right. I just, you know, I hear that language kind of thrown out a lot in the Enneagram world. Um, and I just want to get really clear on kind of for our listeners what that actually means. And that, is that like my autopilot is running even though my eyes are open? Well, yeah, if you could just expound on that a little bit. Well, that's part of it. Part of it is taking on the idea that we're self-hypnotizing mm. and that we mm. put ourselves in trances. Trance for me is a way to describe the how somebody is caught in their pattern, mm-hmm. how they're reacting without choice how they're reacting out of a belief that the world is a certain way that's consistent with their Enneagram style, but not really consistent with the world that they're in. Mm. And then, if you know something about hypnosis, you can take this a lot further because there are characteristic qualities and experiences that people have when they're in official hypnotic trances that actually apply to different Enneagram styles as well. Yeah. Hypnotic phenomena is what they're called, and huh. they're typical for uh, people in in deep trances or even light trances sometimes. There's about 20 of them, and they really kind of overlap with Enneagram styles and get you thinking, oh, you know, this the way I react out of my Enneagram pattern is sort of like being hypnotized and reacting without choice. Hmm. So, for example, um, amnesia is something that is not unusual with people who go into deep trances, who work with a hypnotherapist, a good hypnotherapist. Uh, They'll come out and they won't remember what happened. And good hypnotherapists sometimes will encourage amnesia because they they believe and have faith in the, the client's unconscious to sort of work out whatever was stirred up in the hypnotic experience. Now, nines can have amnesia for themselves. Sevens have amnesia for commitments they just made. Sixes can have amnesia for successes Mm. and times when they were powerful and, you know, in command. The opposite of amnesia is called hypermnesia. And this is where you remember something in very vivid detail and you're, you're inside of it almost. People will sometimes have this in real life when they're, they hear a song that was popular when they were 19 years old and they flash on their first boyfriend or girlfriend and the whole memory comes back to you. Sure. Mm. And uh, you in great sensory detail, you know, there's tastes and smells and sounds yeah. and feelings and emotions. And, and hypermnesia is characteristic of fours. Sometimes mm. when they're in their trance, they go back into the past. They kind of re-drink their memories. 
They'll go someplace that they used to know and, you know, savor it or somebody that they were in love with one time. They'll kind of recreate that. And nostalgia is a, <laughs> a sort of form of hypermnesia in that way. But also, sixes could have hypermnesia in the sense that they'll... Uh, head types tend to tra time travel more mm -hmm. than than the others, you know, going between mm -hmm. the, the past and the future. So a six, you could invite a six to lunch, and they could say, well, it, you know, that's fine. I don't know where you plan on going, but I, I don't eat Mexican food. <laughs> okay. um, <laughs> uh, if it's Thai food or something like that, that's okay. I, I don't know if you plan to drive or not. But I don't really ride on freeways anyway. I, if there's a way to get to a place that's, you know, via back roads, that'd be a lot better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. But the the Mexican food, uh, it just I I have terrible trouble with it. Terrible digestive trouble, and it's just oh, I had this experience one time in a Mexican restaurant, and <laughs> uh, the waiter was rude to me, you know, and the place smelled bad, and there was all this kind of strange food and. I was sicker than a dog after that. It was terrible. It was mm. in 1972 in Tucson, Arizona. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, man. It sounds like a lot of projection there in order to manage the fear that they're expecting. That's right. And, you know, it's sort of like the past bad experience then, you know, kind of puts conditions on my participation in the present uh, and the I future. See. Yeah. Is it possible to have hyper hypermanesia and... What's the other amnesia. one? I'm blanking. Amnesia. Uh, amnesia. There we go. He couldn't remember amnesia. <laughs> I love that. I'm so glad you pointed that out because uh, if not, I wish I did I that on purpose. To, yeah. We'll just go with it. Uh, <laughs> anyways, is it possible to have both of those exist in the same in the same person for like? Well, I was scenarios? just talking about that with sixes, for example. Right. Yeah. 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 You can. Okay. You, you can do it. I mean. Amnesia and hypermnesia are just two of the hypnotic phenomena. Okay. Another yeah, one yeah. is age regression and age progression. Mm -hmm. Age progression means feeling like you're older than your years. Age regression means regressing to younger than your ah. years. Mm -hmm. And there's a tendency within eights and threes and ones to age progress, wow. to feel like little premature adults, uh, to... You know, be focused on the future that you want to live in when you grow up and get out of your family or something like that. There are a number of eights that I've known, you know, they're usually self-preservation eights, who left home when they were 14, for example. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, because yeah, yeah. they already felt like there was a, uh, you know, a, they had a kind of impatient drive towards becoming... A uh, standing on their own feet and becoming an adult. Uh, ones, you know, they can get into kind of little hall monitor mentalities. And uh, one woman said that she, when she was right, she was a one. When she was riding around in cars with boys as a teenager, she was bored out of her mind. And when she turned forty, she suddenly felt like that had been her true age all wow. along. Really? Uh, she said it was like my cl my clothes suddenly fit. Wow. And threes, you know, can be focused towards uh, who they're in the process of becoming and being, you know, have goals and be kind of locked onto those goals. And they, they get you tilted towards the future. Age regression yeah. 
is uh, you could find in fours, you could find in sixes, you could find in twos sometimes, and in sevens sometimes. And it has to do with becoming younger than your years and therefore becoming less resourceful, less powerful than you are, less present than you are. If somebody conceives of themselves as a victim within those Enneagram styles, it's usually an indicator that there's some age regression going uh, on. Okay. And okay. They, they, as they think about it, they discover they're, they only feel like they're seven years wow. old and that kind of thing. Wow. Do you have any personal examples of, uh, obviously you don't have to go specific, but with clients and the work that you've done with NLP and uh, hypnotherapy of how you would use hypnosis or, or other means to help people work through that? Because I think, I mean, a lot of people think of hypnosis as just kind of a party trick or, or whatever. So kind of like the yeah, end <laughs> yeah. you could say you could yeah, say it's a, it's a part <laughs> right, of the game. Right. Yeah. yeah what's your type oh no 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 you're not that type <laughs> yeah you're something else you read books you must right. be a five yeah, yeah. that's right that's right, that's right. <laughs> sorry <laughs> oh man uh, what were, uh, what's what was the, the question? question again uh any personal experiences or like how would you take someone who how would you work with someone to help them work through those things with hypnotherapy and, and NLP and, and whatnot? Well, I don't really do a lot of hypnotherapy, but the people are in trances already. And then we go in and out of little trances all the time. Uh, not just personality trances, which is the deepest one, but, mm. uh, you know, other, you know, you're working really hard and you're focused on stuff and then you sit back and you kind of get dreamy. And that's, that's a trance. Mm. Yeah. And, one way to understand that is that uh, when you're using trance as a practitioner, what you're trying to help somebody do is be kind, be open, be open to ideas or be open to whatever bubbles up in, mm -hmm. in the discussion. A lot of times I'll be working with people and there'll be some sort of visual image that comes to them that's related to their Enneagram style or some point of blockage or some way in which they're, they're trying to solve a problem. Mm -hmm. And I'll work with an image like that sometimes. And then also kind of, I don't know, just sort of respect it. It's, it's almost like their unconscious is telling you what the, what the situation is and maybe what the solution is, how to go forward or what needs to be unraveled and tweezed apart in order to help the person become a little more free. Mm. And yeah. so Tom, you also, you, you've taught workshops, like you've said, all over the country, right? So you're with groups of people you know, all world. over, all over the world. And, um, over, I see somewhere over 900 workshops. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So a lot mm. in, in summary. Um, so I'm curious as to how you tend to this dynamic of a group of people with that in which nine different Enneas, Ennea styles are probably represented in the group, all in their own trances. How do you tend to that in a teaching space and help a group who are each in their own different trances go about this process of change and growth? Well, I do demonstrations sometimes in okay. workshops and... The, those are really specific and tailored to that okay. person and that person's individuality. Despite the fact we're arriving at the sort of the, the character structure and the 
the the way in which the person is forming their reality and shaping their perceptions that's consistent with their Enneagram trance. And in addition, then there's... You, you, if you step back from that, there are generic methods that come out of my background anyway, and that are that other people use too, whether they recognize them as such or not, that are quite helpful. Mm. One of them is called anchoring, okay, and it uh, it has to do with pairing an inner state with a touch or a gesture or a a way of uh, holding your fingers, you know, put your thumb between your your two forefingers and sort of capturing something, kind of tethering it down before it flies away and mm. going into the sensory details of an inner state. Now, when I first got involved with the Enneagram, the th- thing that jumped out at me with something like anchoring, mm. and and people do anchoring all the time, it's anything that creates a, a sort of automatic association, you know, like a logo, for example, something like that. What I did when I first got involved with the Enneagram was I thought, well, what if you anchored the low side, uh, a generic low side experience of someone's Enneagram style, and then explored what the high side of it was and figured out had them experience, talk them through it, maybe using trancey language, talking them into what would be the experience of your, you know, the best of your Enneagram style. What do you like about it the most? Mm-hmm. What, uh, what about your wings? You know, what about the, the one wing you're aware of? There's another wing in there yeah. somewhere. Uh, or some people, about a third of the people are aware of both wings simultaneously and express them both. And then, you know, stress and security points, subtypes, yeah. whatever. And, and then maybe even adding into it, you know, other resources and other strengths. You know, what's it like when you are courageous? Mm. What's it like when you, you know, you calculate a risk and you get to the point where you have to make a leap because there's no more calculating. It's just, uh, you know, you're, you're stepping from one your present position into a void. And of course, usually it's never very far. It's usually only one or two steps. But, you know, things like that. What What's it like when you have other qualities that you really yeah. value? So you anchor that. You, you pair it with a touch. You pair it with some sort of gesture. You pair it with something. So that when you repeat the touch or you repeat the gesture, the inner state comes back. Ah, uh. And then, on the other hand, you might go for a generic experience of someone's low side of their Enneagram style. In other words, there are sort of predictable elements that way. Uh, Sixes, when they scare themselves, they usually have uh, images in their mind's eye that are rather large. They're larger than the six. Hmm. They'll maybe have a loud soundtrack. It's sort of like being in one of those movie theaters we can't go to anymore <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, and sitting in the front row you know and, ah, right. and you're just overwhelmed by what's on the screen and that's in many ways the structure of projection and then there'll be uh, uh the six will have uh, anxiety in their upper chest and they'll have a uh, feeling like a band of steel around their abdomen mm-hmm. something like that 
Mm. Uh, people are different in this way, but the sensory contours of that low side experience will will be somewhat consistent from six to six to six. And then what you do with anchoring is you bring the two together. Mm. In other words, you have the person concentrate on the low side and then you have them concentrate on the high side and you bring those two inner states together in a way that they never come together. You know, they don't normally mm. coexist. And the usual reaction is confusion mm. at first. And then after confusion, there's a kind of integration that sometimes happens. Mm. It's not a magic sure. pill. It's not a cure-all, but it's, it's really helpful. Things like that. And when eights are in their trance, they have a capacity for numbness. There are some eights and some nines with an eight wing who can go to the dentist and they don't need Novocaine, for wow. example. Mm. They have a high pain threshold. Not just numbness, but also, oh, you know, when you're uh, an eight who is about to erupt, can feel a churning in their stomach. And then at a certain point, it's like the energy from that churning comes up and it comes out their mouth. There's a... Huh woman who's an eight, she says, she said uh, one time, I try to behave well, but sometimes p- petrodactyls fly out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and also, uh, in the trance of eight, they tend to see people as caricatures. Mm. They s- they'll see them two-dimensionally and, and as a sort of cartoon, mm. a political cartoon. You know, sometimes what you'll see mm-hmm. is Someone who is famous, who is rendered, but some feature is exaggerated in some way. But they are a thing rather than a three-dimensional person. And it's a lot easier to be aggressive towards a thing than it is a three-dimensional mm. person. And yeah. as eights grow and change, people become come into 3D for them. They, they start to recognize that when they're dissociating and dehumanizing versus... When their hearts are more open and they're they're less defended. Also, uh, you know, an eight is often trying to kind of deny a part of them full expression when they're in their trance. When they're out of their trance, they're they're kind of aware of their sensitivity and appreciate it. But when they're in their trance, they're trying to they might be trying to bully themselves, use a loud voice. You know, however the eight is talking out loud, that's how they talk to themselves. You know, there's a, there can be both a numbness and then a feeling of power in the body. Yeah. Something yeah. like that. But right. then also sevens, there can be that sort of excitement and a, a, a feeling of life and a feeling of uh, expectation and a feeling of like hooray for tomorrow. And then the degree to which it's defensive, the degree to which the person is escaping an inner sense of confinement and limitation is what's up for grabs, what's up for examination, what's, what might be something the person wants to work on because they're escaping without choice and they're escaping something within themselves. This is the, the how gluttony gets going yeah. also. You have mm-hmm. a, a, a yearning for, you're in some difficult situation, suddenly you start thinking about your next trip to Morocco and how great the food is yeah. there. And 
you know, you're out of the present, you're out, you you step into an as if future in order to protect mm. yourself. And it's, it's kind of time distortion, they call it in hypnosis. But there's a point of insecurity that begins all that, that uh, is, is sort of the first step. How, how, and the point of insecurity also is related to how the f- person feels trapped somewhere. And they feel it in their body and they feel it in their emotions when they're guided to it. Uh, it helps very much to, have, uh, to help a seven go into something like that, go into their pain go into something difficult, something that they're uh, frustrated with or stuck on, and then to bring them out again. Uh, one of the things I'll do in working with seven sometimes is we'll identify a sort of dark area that they, they avoid, you know, the dark basement in their, in their house, and we'll develop a pattern for going into that dark basement and then coming back out again going in for the count of seven, coming back out again, going in for the count of 10, coming back out again. Each time the person comes back out, I tell them a joke. Okay. And it's like, <laughs> I'm, I'm, take, I'm taking over their defenses. And doing ah, that, I see. You know, because they, they'd rationalize and cheer themselves up, and I wow. do it instead. And, and then have them go back in a little more, go back in a little more, if you can joke about these things, they get less charged and loaded. Mm. But also, what the person is learning is a strategy for encountering their own depths, encountering their own pain, encountering their own difficulties in bite-sized pieces so that mm. they can go in and you know kind of sample it, come back out, go in, sample it, come back out. And mm. usually a seven's defended against the whole idea of plunging into the painful aspects of their experience. Mm-hmm. So this the, approaching it this way kind of militates against that. And it's also like learning a skill in a way. You know, mm-hmm. I can go in, I can accept this, I can come back out, I can go in, I can come back out. Sure. Now, now all I want to do is hear a joke. So A uh, man goes to a doctor and he says, Doc, it, uh, it, it hurts. The man touches his leg, he says, it hurts here. The man touches his uh, chest, he says, it hurts here. The man touches his head, he says, it hurts here. The doctor's diagnosis, a broken finger. (laughs) 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 Oh, man. That's good. I kind of think funny, and for a long time, I didn't really uh, allow it in my work with people. And then... At a certain point, it, it just occurred to me that you really ought to use whatever you have. Yeah. And yeah. if you don't think funny, you have some other ability or you have mm-hmm. some other way of, of working that incorporates <laughs> a, a knack that you might have. So, Tom, I'm curious as to you you've been how long have you been teaching the enneagram i I probably could do the math from your original story but it's a little over 30 years a little over 30 years yeah yeah and i came across it about 40 years ago 41 years now so i'm curious um to get maybe your observation of how the enneagram and maybe the enneagram community has changed and evolved in those decades that 
since you've encountered it, if you have any thoughts or observations there, I'd love to hear them. Yeah, it's just between you and me, right? <laughs> well, it can be. <laughs> that is up to you. <laughs> um, in the early days, there were two camps. There was Don Rizzo's and Helen Palmer's. Yeah. And they fought. And they were in competition with each other. And it was sort of like divorcing parents or something like that, the way people would react to it. I had seen stuff like this in my experience in the NLP world, and I knew to not get involved in it. So I stayed friendly with everybody and kind of uh, a little bit distant. It, 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 it always struck me as ironic that people were arguing about their interpretations of the Enneagram. You know, I would... Mm. Somewhere in the back of my mind, there would be a little voice that sounded outraged that would say, it's the Enneagram. It's about <laughs> ego. You know, <laughs> it's, you know, this is the stuff you're supposed to get over. Yeah. Wow. That changed after a while. I remember about 1997, there was a woman in a workshop who had gone to both Rizzo's training and Helen's training. And this was considered a daring breakthrough. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> you know, like it was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but there was a lot of, of quarreling and, and weirdness that I wanted to stay away from. And what kept me sort of in the orbit of the, the Enneagram was the way in which the different groups around the country would form. And I would meet those people, or I would go teach in their uh, venues, and they were really in it for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. They, you know, it had impacted them in some meaningful way. It had really landed, and they were really sincere in terms of wanting new choices and wanting to open up and wanting to uh, embrace and work out the implications of their Enneagram style. And that kept me going. But there was a lot of kind of backroom arguing in the, in the early days in some way that was just alien to me anyway. What I notice now is there, there is a phase that people go through when they get involved with the Enneagram where they see it everywhere. Sort of like you buy a new car, it's a Toyota, and suddenly you're aware of Toyotas everywhere on the road. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that is a facet of learning it because it's easy to learn, but it's difficult to master and to really integrate, really get into your, mm -hmm. you know, get it under your skin and get it right. to the point where it's working usefully within you. And so I don't know, I never know when I, you know, like go on Facebook or somewhere else where people are doing the party game Enneagram, mm. where they're talking mm. about, oh, he's a three and, you know, that, that kind of stuff where it's shallow, it's bigoted, it's educated bigotry, maybe. Mm. Uh, oh. and, and it's none of anybody's business who, you know, someone else's Enneagram style, what their Enneagram style is. It's not your business. But they do it anyway. And it becomes stereotyping and it becomes, you know, all the things that you can kind of identify as being not very much like the Enneagram mm. or contradicting the implications of the system, which mm. is, you know, it's pretty much a lifetime homework assignment. 
It's it's pretty much saying get over yourself. Yeah, it's pretty much saying <laughs> just you know, stop it. Your view yeah. of the world is not the world itself. Your view of right. other people is not you know really accurate some of the time. And mm-hmm. there's a gradual mm, evolutionary pressure that's built into it. I think, mm-hmm. but the unconscious will try to avoid that sometimes unless there's sufficient motivation to really get uh, approach changing and growing in a sober sort of way or there's a you know there's a need otherwise there are lots of ways in which people subtly dodge the implications of the enneagram mm. one is to over identify with their style this uh, you know and people who are new to it will sometimes say oh my god you know it just it nailed who i am but as russ hudson would say it tells you who you are but it tells you who you are not right and mm. Uh, you know, it's a it's a template. It's a, a framework, a way in which you, an algorithm almost. People will over-identify with it, and then they'll start, uh, you know, kind of talking about what Enneagram styles they like and dislike, <laughs> which <laughs> is, uh, my guidance in this is a quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson, who said somewhere, people don't seem to understand that their opinion of the world is an a confession of character. <laughs> yeah. Mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. They're talking about the world in their head. And then yeah. if they start talking about Enneagram styles that they like and dislike, they don't realize that they're confessing what is unintegrated with them, uh, within them. Right. And what they right. maybe aspire to as well. Shadows. Tom, you've been around the Enneagram, you said, for about 40 years. And I'm just curious if you've see, begun to see any patterns or... And if so, like if you, where you might say the Enneagram is headed, you know, we're in this sort of rise of popularity. And I know this isn't the first one. Yeah, I'm just curious on your thoughts on that. Well, it breaks in waves. And then as someone who's traveled a lot, it catches on in different countries at different times. Online and especially social media has really contributed to it getting around the world, as have translations of books. I really have no idea. I mean, the it'll get more popular. People will uh, use it and abuse it. Mm-hmm. And they'll use it for highly aspirational, really sincere, open-hearted uh, in, in those ways. And then also, at some point, some idiot will come up with Enneagram eugenics. <laughs> You know uh, how to oh you know how to produce an eight child you know that kind of thing. Mm, gosh, uh, and there's there's a lot of mythology now about it, and a lot more theology attached mm. to it than there was. That that was there, but it wasn't emphasized in quite the same way. People will talk about their model of the enneagram, and I always think, well, there's models about people. And then there's models about models about people. Mm. And you can can apply that to a number of approaches that are presented in in relation to the Enneagram. A number of ways in which the Enneagram is packaged. A number of uh, assumptions. Some of it's religious or theological in some way that I don't think is warranted, especially, but it's it's comforting to people and it's meaningful to people. Mm-hmm. And then some of it is 
theological in a way that just sounds like somebody's creating a new religion. Why, why do you think we're so tied to the dogmaticism of, of making systems dogma? Well, it's, uh, that relates to how egos behave, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, it relates mm-hmm. to well, crave, a craving for existential certainty, a way to kind of calm down existential fears, a way to feel like you're in control, a way to embrace something, you know, like you've swallowed an exclamation mark. You know, and you have this kind of way in which you are uh, absolutely certain of whatever it is you believe. And that's kind of a, uh, the parallel to that, in my mind, would be being an ultra-nationalist, being Mm -hmm. a nativist, somebody who we've, we've had in the United States and will continue to have demonstrations of this kind of mentality. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, in the states, they lead to violence, but in in other countries, they they don't necessarily. But people grab on to a kind of fundamentalism, and mm-hmm. in the fundamentalism, then they they have absolute beliefs. They usually there's usually a group or an affiliation that they have that is the opposite of another group and another affi- affiliation. The people in the next valley are not like us, you know, that kind of thing. The, but the absolutism of it is sort of like that story about uh, the man who's found the truth being followed by the devil. Someone sees this and asks the devil, you know, why are you, the devil, fo- following a man who's found the truth? And the devil says, well, he may have just found the truth, but I'm going to help him organize it. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Yowzers. Okay. Uh, I'm curious if you would say that if we're using the Enneagram correctly, will proof be that we end up at some point finding our way to the void? Well, it is what sort of uh, lurks beyond the panoramic world of our subjective perceptions. You know, yeah. the, you, you, once you open up, you you find that there is... A greater sense of expanse, greater ambiguity in your perceptions, and a, a sense of kind of on the on the high side, a kind of open, creative, intuitive feeling. On the low side, people get terrified of it, and they'll be mm-hmm. frightened of the, the the immensity of the the inner universe that they've opened themselves up to. Never. Never mind looking in a telescope and seeing how vast things are around us. But it's sort of like it, you know, it, it, uh, it subdues your certainties in some way that maybe you want to live that way or maybe not. You know, it, it, motivation's an individual thing. We're all riding our wooden horses on the carousel of karma. And people will, at different phases or stages in their life, they'll, they'll uh, want to open up more or need to open up more, uh, need to resolve things so that they drop away. You know, you, you see through an illusion and suddenly you're, you're no longer in that trance. Uh, but there are plenty of people for whom something like the Enneagram would be, I think, a threat. Because it it's it essentially it essentially says worldviews are relative, and mm. your 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 most treasured certainties are kind of up for question, or they're a function of your psychology, but they're not a function of the world that you 
as, as you believe in it. And there are a lot of people who will cling to their fundamentalism and then go to their graves. And it's part of God's great plan. I don't know. Oh, right, right. And this is why people were put to death for for heresies, right? And flatter yeah. theories. And yeah, because yeah. You, you can't disrupt this stuff, right? Especially if it's operating on a collective level. But yeah, so I'm curious on a on a personal note, Tom, where, like at what point, and maybe the Enneagram was involved in this, at what point did you accept the Enneagram into your heart. That's not what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> but but no, more along the lines of... Uh, I'm on my knees right now. As you know. <laughs> at, at what point did you encounter kind of uh, your, whether it's your sickness or maybe the uh, other beliefs that are a part of your life when things started to shake a little bit and how did you how did you respond to that, and how did you uh, deal with that? Whether that's your how you viewed the world through your sixth lens, or well, I I came to the Enneagram when I was thirty or so, as a terrified young person, and as someone I was counterphobic. I used to climb hotels and jump off of bridges what? and moving trains, things like that. <laughs> really? Wow. All right, yeah, yeah, pause, yeah. story time. Yeah. <laughs> Climbing Rode hotels? a motorcycle, you know, I'd, <laughs> I'd, I'd pull into a gas station, pump gas with a lit cigarette in my mouth. Wow. Kind of thing. <laughs> just just yeah. asking for it, basically. Oh, man. And what happened after that? What would that do for you? What was that like? It would expunge the fear for a couple of days. Wow. Um, I'd climb a hotel, and then I would <laughs> feel free of the fear. If that was a Saturday night, I'd feel free of the fear until Tuesday. Really? Wow. The wow. Po- the, what I gradually realized was it doesn't matter if you're phobic or counterphobic, you're still scaring yourself. Um. And so it, it had to be you know, delved into a different way. I also had a little problem with authority. There's a reason I've actually worked for myself most of my life. <laughs> didn't do real well with taking orders (laughs) but Mm. over time I mean it's been gradual there are you know people will sometimes say well you know I'm a four and I feel like I keep going back to the same tendency and trying to resolve it and then it comes up again and then it comes up again but you don't really step into the same river twice that way you, you you gradually over time really modify your responses if you work on them. And mm. it, it helped me a lot to focus in on how I scared myself mm. and what, what was the use of it and what was the purpose of it. And it's been very gradual, I would say. Like I said, I, I took it as a lifetime homework assignment. Yeah. And... It, but it, but it's helped quite a bit. I mean, it, other things have helped as well. And just living and just uh, exploring the world and finding my courage in various situations. Kind of keeping a... Uh, kind of reminding yourself of what you want rather than what you don't want. And at this point in my life, I'm old now, Getting putting the past to rest in some ways. Mm. Mm. Um, oh. Not you know, not entirely all at once, but, but sort of gradually. And in the gradual, 
doing of that, it's sort of like you make a space each time. And you can go from minor success to minor success, let's say. From victory to victory. Success is too loaded of a word, but victories. Hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of cherish your victories and kind of appreciate them and also keep having them, keep going forward, keep using the time you have left in as, as best a way as you can. How do you, how do you personally, I mean, you said putting the past to rest, like how, how does one go about doing that or how do you do that? Well, um, (laughs) it's complicated. Uh, (laughs) Locating, locating memories. If you think Mm -hmm. about, uh, let's say, 2007, someone who knows about NLP would say, where do you locate 2007? And in other words, where do you keep it? Where do you, where do you, how do you Hmm. locate time? Some people will see the past out in front of them and the future is behind them, kind of like fours will do that. And sixes sometimes. Some people will see the the past as off to the left and the future's off to the right. Some people will see the past or the, the the future in front of them and put the past behind them. Sevens do that. Mm, and beginning yeah. to for me what's been helpful is beginning to notice the the workings of memory, my own memory, and how how I create them, how I revivify them. Uh, uh, to whatever degree. There was a study I read about a few years ago that where they did brain scans on people who had had traumatic experiences when they were younger. And what the brain scans said was that when somebody was remembering a trauma, they were actually remembering the last time they remembered it. Whoa. In other words, uh-huh. uh, which uh-huh. is a copy know, of a two. copy of a copy. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And it's something that you're doing and it's a function and it's, you know, but at the same time, it's, it's not exactly within your control in some sort of absolute sense, but you can sure mm. work with it and distance yourself from certain kinds of memories and, and do that standing back, you know, kind of watching them and letting them mm. resolve somehow from a distance. Beginning to listen to how you talk to yourself and what do you say and how do you say it? You know, do you t- talk to yourself in a loud voice or a quiet voice? Do you, do you talk about things as being always true or never true? Or do you thingify your, your inner experience? Fives will do this sometimes, where hmm. they're quanti- it's spiritual materialism, I guess you'd call it, but they'll quantify their inner experience so hmm. that they'll, the first guy who walked on the moon, Neil Armstrong, was a five, mm-hmm. and he avoided reporters kind of notoriously, but one kind of cornered him one time and cadged an interview, and he asked, one of the questions in the interview was, you seem very fit, Mr. Armstrong. Uh, do you run? And Armstrong said, no, I don't run. I'm not going to waste my time running around a track. What he was talking about was losing something rather than gaining something. Mm. And the the fear of loss in that way is sometimes part of a five's contraction. But also the 
the way in which you're trying to uh, uh, sort of hang on to something, I guess is what I'm after. Mm. Yeah. 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 Tom, uh, as a, I don't know, Jedi master in the Enneagram, but specifically, (laughs) you know, sixness, I wonder if you could tell us how it is that you find the virtue, like of courage. How how do you how do you go about? Allow, well, maybe getting it or allowing it to come forward. I'm just curious about it in your in your world. How you do that? There's broadly speaking two kinds of motivation strategies. Mm-hmm. Two kinds of motivations. Let's say motivations to change. One of them is avoiding a worse alternative. And another is going towards and having a goal and wanting something more or wanting something new. And I have a little of both. I'm kind of curious and sort of focused ahead on my good days. And then avoiding something. You you know, a six will go to a therapist and say, well, you know, I've got to get over my anxiety. Otherwise, my my wife will leave me. My version of that is, well, this is an, you know something I discover in myself, and I, I think, well, this is something else I'm attached to. Mm. Won't this be ripped away from me at the moment of my death? <laughs> mm. <laughs> and that really, that really works. That's really helpful to you know, yeah. be reminded of that. And, and also that it's... You know, where we're going is sort of an existential mystery anyway. And Mm -hmm. becoming comfortable with ambiguity rather than feeling like you have to choose between, you know, opposite choices. Or when you're in the trance of six, you're kind of, you can't make up your mind. You go back and forth. But if you, if you kind of grow with that, it allows you to kind of consider opposites and consider opposite choices or opposite ideologies and kind of weigh them and balance them without feeling like you have to choose between them. And I like that. Yeah, sounds like you're saying perspective, gaining perspective. You know, as we we begin to uh, land the plane or... Dock the ship, whatever this thing is. Stick the landing. There you go. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Whatever it is we're riding or gymnastically doing. (laughs) Uh, I'm just curious what it is uh, that you're most excited about now. Anything new that you're working on? I I think I saw a book maybe at some point. Yeah, there's some some writing. um, I'm working on uh, on on-demand courses. That you ah. that you put online. Nice. I'll probably do some live courses again. I've I've essentially been away from that since last year, mm. and trying to this for me, it's been a period of collating, of taking a bunch of stuff that I've learned or taught or used for forty years or so, and kind of shaping it into various forms that are useful to other people. I also do, uh, I work with clients. I do do online Skype sessions with people. And that I like very much. And that's a continuously evolving sort of enterprise. There are some things that go with NLP that I like very much. They're neo-NLP. NLP in its early days, in, in its earlier form, and I suppose in its current form, there's two NLPs. 
And one of them is deep and interesting and extensive. And when you apply it to something like the Enneagram, it really opens up the Enneagram. It opens up a lot of possibilities. Mm-hmm. There's another version of NLP that's uh, glib, shallow, and sociopathic. Mm-hmm. And that, that's that's to be avoided. It's, yeah, that sounds like the life. bad kind. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's the bad kind. Change your life in five minutes, kind of thing. Uh, so, where's the and, best spa- place that somebody could read up on NLP or Ericksonian hypnosis? What's the best content to get? Uh, well, there's a, a massive amount of content actually. Uh, Is there one book or something you would point people to? There are some books by a man named Steve Andreas. He's no okay. longer with us. A-N-D-R-E-A-S, that uh, are very worthwhile and well done and well edited. There were early books about NLP that were that kind of captured the spirit of it. It was sort of anarchistic in its early days, but in a nice way. Part of it was nice. One book was called Frogs into Princes, and another one was called Transformations, hmm. and that was about Ericksonian hypnosis. There's a lot of stuff online. And there's, I don't really have a list with me, but there's a couple of dozen really good NLP teachers, and then, in and then there the rest of them are not so good in this way that I just described, and have good hearts, and you know it's sort of like the Enneagram. It kind of depends on oh, your own yeah. personal attitude and evolution and open heartedness, how well you render the material. Well, um, I think to close up here, Tom, I wanted to ask where where could people find you and your your content? It's the thechangeworks all one word dot com. The Shameless Commerce division of it. Uh, <laughs> I I have a number of uh, recorded workshops over the years. There's about eight of them mm-hmm. on different subjects, different topics related to the Enneagram and. The Enneagram as viewed through the lens of NLP and using it to grow and change, which was always my mm. perspective on it, it yeah. rather than just knowing about it or joining a club where everybody else knew their Enneagram style. It was like, you know, really doing something with it. Mm. And so there's a lot of that. I have some videos there, a couple of books, and a line of Ericksonian hypnosis trances also. Wow. And okay. and then if people want to do coaching, they they can reach me through there, and lots of stuff about fifty products. Yeah, we'll be sure to link to your website and those things in the show notes of this episode, so people can easily find you. That'd be great. Wonderful. Well, any more questions, boys? <laughs> I mean, uh, thousands, but well, yeah. yeah. What's the nature of reality? <laughs> oh. Uh, Check back with me in about <laughs> 40 <Okay>. years. <laughs> 40 years, okay. Yeah, I'll yeah. put it in the calendar. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's awesome. Right. <laughs> oh, thank you, Tom, so much. Yeah, yeah. thank this, you so much. This has yeah. been a joy, and uh, it's it's uh, an honor to talk with you about these things and really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast. If you found this episode helpful in any way, consider sharing it with a friend or family member. We are so honored to be on this journey with you, discovering our inner depths one fathom at a time.
Truthwork Media Studios.